Good morning, everyone. In the instructions for keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, God told the Israelites to remember that they had dwelt in booths or tabernacles during their sojourn in the wilderness after they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt. As we read in Leviticus 23 and verse 34, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. And then in verse 39 it goes on to say, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. In the year it shall be... Uh, a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations know, may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Before we proceed, I want to address a controversy concerning this command to live in booths. There are some who contend that we must literally take tree branches and make huts out of them and live there during the Feast of Tabernacles in order to keep the feast properly. And if we were living under the Old Covenant and we were among those born in Israel, that would be true. However, we are no longer under the Le Levitical law, which would also include the offering of offerings made by fire and so forth in connection with keeping the feast. Under the new covenant, we are obliged to keep the spiritual intent of the law. For example, we are to offer various sacrifices under the new covenant, the primary one being that we are to be living sacrifices to God as we're told in Romans 12 and verse 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God which is your reasonable service and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God but even though we are required to be a living sacrifice and sacrifice in other ways as Christians, we are not required to keep the carnal ordinances of the ritual law imposed under the Old Covenant, such as the offering of animal sacrifices and 
various other rituals that uh, were given to Israel under the Old Covenant. Now those things had symbolic significance. And we can learn lessons from them even though we do not apply the sacrificial laws and similar ordinances in the letter under the New Covenant. Now it would not be wrong to do so if circumstances permitted, but it is not required. As Paul wrote in Hebrews 9 and verse 1, Then indeed the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Note that there were ordinances of divine service. There were laws that were imposed on Israel in connection with the worship of God and in connection with the services of the earthly sanctuary. The ordinances of divine service included the rituals imposed in association with that worship, but as Paul wrote, in going on in verse 9, those rituals cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, it is important that we understand that God took the children of Israel out of Egypt and that He led them through a wilderness on the way to their promised inheritance. And that during that time, they dwelt in temporary shelters such as tents and huts made of tree limbs and so forth. It is important that we understand that and remember it. And we need to understand that there are vital spiritual lessons that we can learn from those facts by way of analogy, and we are intended to learn those lessons. But we don't have to literally live in tents or huts made of tree limbs to learn those lessons. Doing so will not make us any less or any more righteous in terms of the conscience. And not doing so will not impede our ability to learn and apply the spiritual lessons associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Under the present circumstances and given the instructions in God's Word, I do not believe that it is that uh, literally making huts of tree branches and living in them during the feast is something that God imposes on us at the present time. So I wanted to uh, explain that because there are, as I mentioned, those who believe firmly that we must literally make huts of tree branches and dwell in them. It is not something I believe is necessary for us to do at the present time and under our present circumstances. But, as I said, it's important that we remember that the people of Israel did dwell in booths or tabernacles, tents, temporary dwellings of one kind or another 
during their trek in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. In addition to the fact that Israel dwelt in booths in the wilderness is something that the feast points to, we also understand that the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to a time when Jesus Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years and beyond. We're told that Jesus Christ will return a second time. In Hebrews 9 and verse 28, it says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So, Jesus Christ, we're told in many scriptures, is promised to return a second time. He's going to return to dwell on the earth. We read in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> and it says in verse 4, Revelation 20, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it tells us that Jesus Christ will reign after his return on the earth for a thousand years with the saints who will have been resurrected. And in connection with Jesus Christ appearing a second time for salvation and establishing his kingdom on the earth, we read of a feast for all people, all nations on the earth. It says in Isaiah 25, verse 6, In this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface, the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. This is speaking of removing the spiritual blindness that has afflicted mankind since the time of the Garden of Eden. And goes on to say, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And really this theme that is, that is reflected here in this scripture is actually the theme of the Feast of Tabernacles of rejoicing, of feasting, worshiping God. The Feast of Tabernacles has long been understood among the Jews as pointing to the time in the future when the Messiah 
shall rule and salvation will be brought to all nations of the earth. As we read in The Temple by Alfred Adersheim, which is a book that explains the, how the Jews uh, worshipped in the temple services, uh, it says in that book, quote, The harvest thanksgiving of the Feast of Tabernacles reminded Israel on the one hand of their dwelling in booths in the wilderness, while on the other hand it pointed to the final harvest when Israel's mission should be completed and all nations gathered unto the Lord. End quote. So it is not only a reminder of Israel dwelling in booths in the wilderness, but it points to all nations being gathered to worship God in unison and Christ ruling for a thousand years. In Zechariah, we're informed that following the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his throne in Jerusalem, as we read in, Jer in Zechariah 14, verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. So there will be representatives of all nations after Christ's throne is established on the earth who will be going up to Jerusalem to worship and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But if the Feast of Tabernacles points to the future kingdom of God and salvation for all mankind in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, why were the Israelites instructed to dwell in booths or temporary dwellings during the Feast of Tabernacles? To remind them that they dwelt in booths as they came out of Egypt. What's the significance of that for us? Why booths during the Feast of Tabernacles? What is it of spiritual significance that we are to learn from that. And that's what I wanted to, to discuss primarily in today's sermon. To understand the connection between the millennium and booths in the wilderness, we need to look at the conditions that will exist on the earth during the time of the millennium. It will, after God's kingdom is thoroughly established, be a time of abundance of everything. As we read earlier, it will be like a continual feast lasting for a thousand years. In Isaiah 30, in verse 23, it says, He will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground. This is speaking of the time that after Israel is brought back out of captivity. He will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and the bread of the increase of the earth. And it will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. In Amos chapter 9 verse 13. It says, Behold the days are coming, says the Lord. And this is also a prophecy of Israel uh, and how they will be blessed after they return out of captivity. Behold the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. 
and the treasure of grapes, him who sows seed. And that what this is picturing is, is a, a, harvest, a harvest of superabundance. And it says, The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. This is pointing to material abundance, superabundance, that the nations, not only Israel, but other nations too, will enjoy during the millennial period. In Jeremiah 31, and verse 12, it says, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and will make them rejoice rather than sorrow. So here is pictured the population of the earth, Israel, and then the rest of the nations enjoying abundance of everything. When people are enjoying abundance, when they have everything they need and more, that often spells danger spiritually. That is the time when they are most likely to begin to forget God if they are not careful. You know, often people only think of God when they're there's some kind of trial, severe trial or problem and they turn to God to seek God's intervention and help but once things are going well and there aren't any issues or problems people tend to forget God that's human nature in, in Nehemiah 9 verse 20 it says uh, rehearsing the history of Israel and their relationship with God in Nehemiah 9 verse 20 it says you also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land and you subdued them, you subdued, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of good cisterns, already dug vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. But then what happened? It says in verse 26, Nevertheless, 
they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself and they worked great provocations. When Israel entered the land and became prosperous, they promptly forgot God. This is mentioned also in other scriptures, in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 9. It says, The Lord's portion is his people Jacob, is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled them, he instructed them, he kept them as the apple of his eyes. An eagle stirs up his nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there is no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from plenty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats. With the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes, but Jeshurun, this is a name for Israel, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods that did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So again, we see that in their prosperity, Israel promptly forgot God. While the Feast of Tabernacles points to a time of great abundance and plenty, it also serves through the emphasis on booths and the wilderness era as a reminder of the origins of the nation. A reminder of where they came from and how they got there. And a reminder of the source of the blessings that they will enjoy. There will be a need for that kind of reminder, especially during the millennium. Actually, there's a <clears throat> need for it all the time. But especially during the millennium, there will be a need for that kind of reminder. During the millennium, people will be living very long lives in the flesh. In Isaiah 65, verse 19, it says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. This is a prophecy concerning millennium. And it says, The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days for the child shall die a hundred years old but the sinner 
being 100 years old, shall be accursed. This is verse 20. They shall build houses and inherit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now in verse 20, where it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. This is often understood as implying that children will not be dying in infancy, as is common today and has been common for pretty much as far back in time as you want to go in the history of man. But at, at that time, people will not have children only to see them die after a few days or a few weeks or even a few years. So long will be a normal lifespan that a person who dies a hundred years old, if there are any, will be considered to have died virtually in childhood. And even sinners will live very long lives. Even a hundred years is a pretty long life, at least from our perspective. But it says that generally people's lives will be as the days of a tree. And many species of trees live for hundreds of years. In fact, trees are the oldest, or the longest living um, living things on the earth. And what that implies is that people may be living for hundreds of years in many cases. It's often difficult even with the short lives that we typically live in this age to remember that life in the flesh is only temporary. With most people in the millennium living such long lives with universal prosperity and abundance, it will require effort for people to remember that not only is physical life not the main goal, but that it is also temporary. And it is transitory. And it will come to an end. Rehearsing the trek in the wilderness where the people lived in temporary dwellings will be a reminder that life in the flesh is temporary. And that there is a greater goal towards which we should be looking. The book of Ecclesiastes has for thousands of years been read among the Jews, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. This book, the book of Ecclesiastes, has some powerful lessons that apply to any age, but its message is especially applicable to the people who will be living in the flesh during the millennium. The theme of the book is that life is vanity. That is, it is transitory. 
Everything in this fleshly existence is fleeting. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity essentially means something that is passing away, something that is transitory and temporary, something that is not going to last in this context. Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, sought out the ultimate meaning or purpose of life. That was his pursuit, and that's what the book essentially is about. And in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 13, he said, I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. In other words, what, what is life all about? What's it for? What's, what, what are we to accomplish? And he saw that typically what men are consumed with in this life is nothing but vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 14, he said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. All is vanity and grasping for the wind because everything is temporary. Everything physical is temporary. In the book, Solomon reminds us that while enjoying life is our heritage and that is what God intends, he does intend that we enjoy our lives. But in doing so, we need to remember that our works are being judged. And he reminds us that in the end, in the end, as far as the flesh is concerned, is death. And if we are to fulfill the ultimate purpose of our lives, we must submit to God's commandments. We cannot fulfill the purpose of our lives, our physical lives, if we do not learn to submit to God's commandments, to fear God, to develop a relationship with God in obedience to Him and faith toward Him. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 17, he said, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they, himself, they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better 
than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? What Solomon is pointing out here is that with respect to the flesh, human beings are no different from any other physical creature because every physical creature's life is temporary. Everything made of flesh will perish. And so in that respect, human beings have no advantage over other physical creatures. They will die like any other animal or any other physical creature. The difference, as he points out, is that man has a spirit which will go back to God who made it, as he also points out elsewhere. Well, he points it out here. The, the, spirit goes, the spirit of the man goes upward or back to God who gave it. And spirit of, of animals simply perish with the death of the animal. So, we should work and we should rejoice in our works. But we also need to be mindful of, of the hereafter. And he admonishes us in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Now it's never too late as long as you have breath to develop a relationship with God, but it's far better if you begin doing that early in life. You'll find that you have a lot more, a lot fewer uh, problems. You'll have problems, but they won't, they'll be of a different nature. And people who develop a relationship with God earlier in their lives tend to have happier, more peaceful lives and tend to live longer, frankly. Generally speaking, that's not always true, of course, but generally speaking, it is. So he admonishes us to remember our Creator, and he sums up the matter at the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, to sum up the entire purpose of our lives, it is to learn to fear God and to keep His commandments because we're being watched, we're being judged. And if we fail to learn the lesson to fear God and to keep His commandments, our lives will not have accomplished the ultimate purpose for which we were created because that is the purpose, to learn to fear God and to keep His commandments so that we can become sons of God in His eternal kingdom. That's the purpose of life, ultimately. Now, a hypocrite may prosper in this life 
and many do. But the life of a hypocrite will end in futility. You know, people sometimes look around and compare how other people are doing in life and they see people who are not all that righteous necessarily prospering and maybe making tons of money and having more than enough of everything and maybe one is struggling to serve God and is struggling to, to support himself, make a living, barely surviving and begins to, to uh, question God, question the, the uh, advantage of serving God. But here's what Job said, Job 27 and verse 8, What is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much if God takes away his life. You know, Jesus said, uh, if you gain the whole world but you, you lose your life, what have you actually gained? Nothing in the end. <clears throat> and Job says the same thing in, a, in, a, in effect here. What is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I, cannot, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you not behave? Or why then do you behave with complete nonsense? Now this is a good question. <laughs> Why do we behave with complete nonsense? <laughs> this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth. And interestingly, this word is the same word, sukkah, the Hebrew word sukkah, which is used of booths that were occupied by the people of Israel during their wilderness journey. There are other words that are also used uh, that would be translated somewhat differently, such as tent and so forth. But uh, this is uh, like a booth, a cottage, a tent, or a tabernacle, which a watchman makes. And what this is a reference to is uh, in Israel often in the vineyards and so forth they would build these huts in the middle of, of the vineyard and they would have a, per, a person out there watching to keep the animals and so forth from eating up the crop uh, near harvest time and so forth. And these were simple 
structures similar to those that were built in the wilderness. And <clears throat> so what he is saying is that a hypocrite may build a house and it could be, it doesn't specifically say this, but normally someone who has tons of silver isn't going to build a little uh, shack made out of twigs to <laughs> live in. He's going to build a, a, a very uh, luxurious house to live in. But from the standpoint of, of um, its utility in terms of the ultimate end that he will come to, it's like living in a booth because everything is temporary. You know, a, a, a palace made out of stone may last, last longer than a, a, a booth made out of sticks and, and branches, but eventually it's going to fall apart. And you can look at the ruins of ancient cities such as Babylon and Nineveh and many others where, where the buildings were built out of stone and they're nothing but ruins now. In that sense, they're like a booth. Goes on to say, the rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. Speaking of the final end that he will come to. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. In other words, eventually he's going to be blown away like leaves in the wind. And his life will end in futility and hopelessness. Lest our lives end in futility and hopelessness, we are to live as pilgrims, as travelers, as temporary residents in this world. Like the people trekking through the wilderness out of Egypt, to the promised land. That's how we're to look at this physical life that we're living. The people living in the millennium as physical human beings living for hundreds of years, living in superabundance, will also need to apply the same principle. They will need to have that lesson ingrained into their minds Peter admonishes us to, as strangers and pilgrims in this world, abstain from fleshly lusts. In other words, we need to be constantly aware that we are under judgment. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, 
I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak to, uh, against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are to be as sojourners and pilgrims in this life and abstain from fleshly lusts. Being aware that we are under judgment. If we are to receive the ultimate prize of eternal life in God's kingdom, we must continue faithful to the end. As Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Notice whose house we are. We are, in a sense, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, or enter my rest being the promised land in this case. And that generation did not. They died in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhorting one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This is a message for us, but it is also a message for the people living in the millennium. They will need to be reminded of what happened in the wilderness, not only that Israel dwelt in temporary dwellings, but also they failed to see beyond the present. And because of their sins, because they fell prey to the deceitfulness of sin, they missed out on being able to enter the promised land, the final place of destination which God had in mind for them, which is 
typical of the kingdom of God. Even though the people of Israel were living in booths in the wilderness, most of them failed to learn any lesson from it. Just living in a booth doesn't necessarily teach you anything. As we can see from what happened to the people of Israel. Their lack of faith blinded them to the vision of what God sought to do for them. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see past the end of their nose. Abraham, however, had a different capacity to see. Abraham, over time, received great blessings from God. Abraham lived from what, from our perspective, was a very long life. And he could have allowed his prosperity and physical pursuits to consume him, but he did not. His vision led him to live his life in faith toward God and to see, along with his wife Sarah, the advantage of living as a stranger and a pilgrim in this life. In Hebrews 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See, they had vision. They could see with their mind's eye the promises that were afar off. They didn't let the here and now and the pleasures of life the deceitfulness of riches blind them to their ultimate purpose and destiny. But they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They lived with that frame of mind. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek a homeland. They seek a different destination from the one where they are presently. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, 
They would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they were li Abraham was living in a city to begin with. He didn't have to go out and live in the desert and, or, or a, a more or less a, a wilderness area <clears throat> or semi-wilderness and live in tents, except that God told him to go there, and he went. But he could have gone back to the city. He didn't have to stay out there. He had the choice. He could have gone back. He didn't, though, because he was looking for something better, the city that God had prepared for him to dwell in. It's vitally important that we learn the lesson that whatever else is going on in our lives, we must be mindful of God. We must be seeking God's kingdom first as our primary goal in life. Our physical bodies are temporary. The world around us is perishing. And our focus should be on God and on His kingdom first and foremost. In Hebrews 13, Paul wrote, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. He's talking about people of the church who have been put in prison. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. <clears throat> in other words, they are part of the body of Christ of which we are a part. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Notice he doesn't say you just blindly follow somebody who claims to be a leader or a preacher or a prophet or whatever. But it says you follow them considering the outcome of their conduct. And if you see there's a problem and they're misleading you, you need to consider that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. And we have all sorts of weird doctrines floating around, even in the church of God among various groups these days. Strange doctrines, false doctrines, a ridiculous speculation and foolishness. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which is, have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin or burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, being a Christian, a real Christian, is rarely popular. <laughs> being a Christian is not likely to make you the most popular person on the block. <laughs> and it's very likely that you will be subjected to ridicule and so forth because of your faith, if you're a real Christian, because you're different. You're not like everybody else. You don't participate with them in the same activities. You don't run in the same circle. So they look on you just a little bit weird. Now, you shouldn't be weird, but <laughs> they may look at you like that. Anyway, it says, we should be willing to bear Christ's reproach. He was rejected by his own people and crucified. But he goes on to say, here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And that should be our mindset. We're not here permanently. This is not our permanent abode. We're looking forward to a permanent place, a permanent life in the household of God. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So, as we live our lives, we must keep in mind that they are temporary and that we will stand before God in the judgment. But if we are faithful, these temporary abodes will be exchanged for an eternal habitation from heaven. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, he's talking about our bodies, We have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. This is the lesson of the booths. Because booths are designed to be temporary. As our bodies are. But... When this tent is destroyed, these, these bodies are destroyed, analogous to a tent or a booth. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens that's not going to perish, but will go on for eternity. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for 
we who are in this tent, this fleshly body, we who are in this tent, this booth, this temporary abode grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This is what God has prepared us for. That's why he gave us our lives. So that we could dwell with him forever. And so he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, this body, this flesh, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, we'll ple well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. See, that should be our aim. That should be the aim of our lives. First and foremost, to please God. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So let's remember the lessons of the booths. Our lives are temporary and fleeting. But if we learn to fear God and keep His commandments, we can have the promise of eternal life fulfilled in us.